I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women and I am a woman. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. Now, something that I like to do every year when we're about halfway through the year is to do my top 10 best and worst films of the year so far. So that's films that released in the UK between January and the end of June. We're into July now, so the first six months have gone. So what I'm going to do is for the next two podcasts, I'm going to do my top 10 lists. And coming up in the next podcast, I'm going to do my top 10 worst films of the year so far. So worst films released in the UK between January and June 2019 but we're going to start on a much more positive and upbeat note with my favourite films of the year so far now a couple of rules first off these are films that were released in UK cinema, so some of them may have opened in America or other territories in a different period. So, you know, please don't uh, be distressed when you hear of a film that, oh, you know, I saw that last year. Yep, but it's to do with whether or not it actually played in British cinemas. I'm not counting festival screenings, so there'll be some films that maybe you saw at the Edinburgh Festival or the London Film Festival. These are films that actually opened in the UK between January and June. The second thing is, there are already some titles that have opened in July that aren't in this list, because obviously July's into the second half of the year but I will definitely be including in my top 10 and I'll start by saying that Only You which opened here in July which is one of my favourite films of the year so far that is definitely going to be in my top 10 at the end of the year but it's not in this list. Other thing is there are clearly some major omissions I mean I've gone through this list of movies there were so many great movies that I've seen so far this year and there are lovely things that I, I really like to have included in the list which Include films like In Fabric, the Peter Strickland film, which I think is brilliant, Fighting With My Family, which has got such a terrific central performance by Florence Pugh. Mid-90s, which I really enjoyed. I don't think it got half the attention it should have done. Or going back to January, Stan and Ollie. These are films which all could well have been included in this list. And bear in mind... These lists are always hard to compile, not least because of what you put in, but because of what you have to leave out, and it's heartbreaking. But there we go. It has to be done, so I've done it. Here we go. Top 10 films of the year so far between January and June 2019, starting at number 10 with Capernaum. This is Nadine Labaki's wonderful Lebanese drama in which there's a young boy living in Beirut and he decides to take legal action against his parents for bringing him into this strife-riven world. Nadine Labaki came on the MK3D show. If you're a regular here at the Kermit on Film podcast, you'll remember her interview. 
If you're not, if you're a newcomer, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for downloading it. Go back a few months and uh, listen to Nadine Labaki's interview. She's brilliant with her actors and she works wonders with the young star of her film, who is a Syrian refugee, gives a brilliant performance as the 12-year-old at the heart of the drama. I think you pronounce his name Zayn al-Rafia, but my pronunciations, as you'll know if you are a regular here, are terrible. The film was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars, and I thought it was a, a really wonderful drama, very moving, very poignant, brilliantly done, not least because of its fantastic performances. So at number 10, Capernaum. <laughs> On to number nine. Now, again, another film you might not have seen because it didn't get quite the attention I think it should have done, Birds of Passage. Christina Gallego shares her debut directorial credit with uh, Tira Guerra, who directed Embrace of the Serpent. If you... If you listen to my reviews regularly, you'll know that I absolutely loved Embrace of the Serpent. And one of the best things about Embrace of the Serpent when it first came out, there's a cinema I know down in Cornwall that got an audience for Embrace of the Serpent because they had shown the absolutely fabulous, the Ab Fab movie a couple of weeks before. And people had come to the cinema and they liked the cinema so much that they just came back to see whatever was on. And so people went to see Embrace of the Serpent because they liked Ab Fab. This is a tale of gangsters and spirits. It's played out against this incredibly arresting backdrop of uh, northern Colombia. It was described by its creators as an investigation of, quote, the great tragedy that would curse us forever, the great taboo that we are not allowed to discuss. It's a story which is basically about the way that the birth of the Colombian drug trade impacts upon an indigenous Wayu family. And I remember reviewing it at the time and saying, that the result, it's it's kind of like the epic sweep of the Godfather trilogy with some of the magical realism of Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And it's colourful and bright and vivid and tragic and really, really sort of richly textured. As I said, it didn't get quite the attention that I think it deserved when it came out, although it did play quite a few art house cinemas. If you, if you haven't seen it yet, do check it out. It's, it's a really terrific movie. At number nine, Birds of Passage. On to number eight, another foreign language title, a film which really caught me by surprise, Burning. This is a South Korean sort of mystery movie, like a thriller, or is it a thriller? It's from Lee Chang-dong, and it's based on uh, a story called Barn Burning by Haruki Murakami. And when I saw this, I knew nothing about it at all. I just knew the title of the film, the venue that it was on, and the time that it was on. I think it was on at like nine o'clock on a Tuesday morning. And I went in to see it. I hadn't even seen a poster. So I had no idea kind of what genre of film it was. And it starts off looking like a sort of innocent love story about somebody who's kind of awkward and shy and they meet somebody who's an old friend and it looks like a love story. And then it starts to turn into what looks like a like a triangular romance, like a love triangle. Then it takes a strange turn and it becomes like a parable about class war and class difference. And then, almost without noticing, it turns into something that may or may not be a murder mystery. And I say it may or may not be because even having seen the film, I'm not really sure if that's what it is. There, there is certainly one specific aspect of the plot which is so enigmatic, which is so elusive, which is so tantalising 
I'd hate to be the person who had to write the plot synopsis of it for Sight and Sound magazine. If you write for Sight and Sound, one of the things you have to do is literally write a synopsis of everything that happens on screen. And sometimes that can be fine. You know, somebody does this, then they do that, then this other thing happens. But if you were trying to write a synopsis of this, I don't even know where you'd begin. It's so hypnotic and it's haunted me ever since I, I first saw it. And I keep going back to it and thinking, what was it, you know? Was it a romance? Was it a thriller? Was it a class parable? What what kind of film was it? And all I can say for sure is it's utterly haunting, utterly mesmerising, and something that stays with you because it's so baffling and so brilliantly tantalising. On to number seven, and at number seven, Dirty God. This is the uh, the English language uh, debut from Dutch filmmaker Sasha Pollock. Now, again, Sasha Pollock came on the uh, MK3D show. This is the live show that I do at the BFI South Bank. I do it every month, and uh, we always use the stuff from the show and put it here on the podcast on Kermit on Film. So if you get a chance, go back through the previous shows and listen to Sasha Pollock's interview. Um, as I said, she's a Dutch filmmaker. This was her English language debut. And it's a story of a survivor, a woman who's a survivor of an acid attack in a, living in a kind of world of Instagram beauty who is struggling to reclaim her life and to redefine her identity. And the film is in my top ten list, not least because it has this extraordinary central performance by Vicky Knight, who is a feature first-timer who I've never seen before, but is absolutely brilliant. I mean, she just brings such authenticity to the role. It's and it's a really complicated role. It's a role that's very daring. It requires a an awful lot of um, uh, well. It's it's a very revealing role. I mean, there are things in it that are very intimate. There are things in it that are very harsh. There are things in it that are. It's just the kind of role that you'd expect would need a seasoned professional actor, and yet Vicky Knight arrives out of nowhere and takes it on and makes it her own. I was so impressed by her work in that. I think we will see much, much more of her in the future. She seems to be incredibly versatile and really convincing. And the film is great because it's got this fabulous central performance, but also because there are no platitudes in it. It, it doesn't soft soap its subject matter at all. It's a proper, you know, a tough drama about a tough subject, but it's full of life and humour and rebirth and renewal. And I think it's actually a really wonderfully uplifting film. Dirty God at number seven. Uh. <laughs> He's still looking. He's definitely looking at my face. No, it ain't your face. <laughs> it is my face. No, it's not. There was this one time <laughs> I was still in hospital and my mum brought Ray to see me for the first time and she comes in and she clocks me and she goes... She goes monster. So my mum, my mum, she's like, it's a nice monster, Ray. You know, from in the night garden, see babies, have you seen that? Um, and I'm just laying there looking at her like, she kept on saying it and nodding her head. Kept on saying it. 
On to number six, in a film which should have been released many, many years ago, decades ago, in fact. Amazing Grace, the documentary about Aretha Franklin's two-night performance in uh, 1972 um, at the New Temple Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles. This is a really famous concert because the soundtrack of this went on to be the biggest-selling live gospel album of all time. And when the concerts were planned, because there'd been some success with concert movies and the film company started to think, well, you know, there's gold in them, their hills. Sidney Pollock, who is an Oscar winner, was brought in to film the concert. Unfortunately, according to popular legend, Sidney Pollock, who had a background in drama, but not in music documentary, didn't use clapperboards or slates. He didn't want to be getting in the way of the performance. So he shot loads and loads of footage but the footage was unsynced meaning that what you saw on screen couldn't be synced to the soundtrack and only after he'd filmed the whole concert and they'd taken everything back into the editing room did they realize the problem and at one point they actually got in a team of professional lip readers to see if they could lip read what people were singing so that they could sync the picture to the sound but it turned out to be much too complicated it ended up getting shelved and the project kind of went into abeyance now many years later the project was revived by producer alan elliott who began attempting to reconstruct it using modern technology modern technology can basically look at loads and loads of footage and can figure out how the footage fits together like a mosaic, and it makes it possible to sync the footage up to the sound, which is what they've done. So after all this time, after all these decades, after everybody knowing the soundtrack album for such a long time, but never seeing the footage that was meant to accompany it with a feature film, the feature film has arrived. There were some problems about its release before, about whether or not Aretha Franklin was going to authorise the release, although this appears to be down to a licensing issue about the original contract had fallen into abeyance. Obviously, Aretha Franklin is no longer with us, but this film actually makes you feel like you're in the room or rather in the church there with her. Two things about the footage. Firstly, it does show you just how small the venue is. If you know the the record, you know the sound of the record, it sounds big and cathedral-like, but the church is actually very, very small. The second thing is, it is a genuinely spiritual experience. I mean, you see people bursting into tears on screen like the Reverend James Cleveland, and it's no surprise why to be there in the presence of this extraordinary voice. And Franklin's performance is quite remarkable, and she is clearly in a different space being in the church than she would be elsewhere on a, you know, on a normal performance stage. So it has been worth the wait. It's a shame that it didn't come out when it should have come out all those years ago, but you know what? It's brilliant to see it for the first time, now fully reconstructed. I'm climbing, I'm climbing, high mountain, trying to get home. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. 
For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Into the top five now. And at number five, us, or as many people have pointed out, US, which is kind of what the intended pun of the title is. Jordan Peele, who did such a brilliant job with liberal America in uh, in Get Out, follows it up with this movie, which is kind of a Twilight Zone mashup of Dostoevsky's The Double on the one hand, and there's a bit of Jack Finney's The Body Snatchers. And there's, again, a sort of dark wit, which is reminiscent of Ira Levin. If you, if you liked Get Out, you'll know there's an awful lot of Stepford Wives in Get Out. And I think that same sort of dark comedy is here. It's basically a, a modern fable that takes our anxieties about outsiders and turns them into ourselves. So if you've ever seen that French-Romanian home invasion horror, Them, I think Eels is the original title, this is kind of like a mirror image riposte, which takes that Sartre idea about hell being other people and says, no, hell is actually us. The film is great, partly because it's really good fun, partly because it's a really creepy and well-played idea, partly because it has a brilliant performance by Lupita Nyong'o. I mean, actually, the entire ensemble cast is really great, but Lupita Nyong'o is particularly striking. And uh, credits, too, to Madeleine Hollander, who was the movement coach, because actually one of the things about the film, if you know the Hideo Nakata film, Ringo Ring, which has got that kind of really creepy movement of the central spectral character in it, and you get a little bit of that in Us. And then there's this great score by Michael Arbels, which reminded me of the score for The Omen of Ave Satani from The Omen. So it had all those things going for it. It's kind of creepy and it's, you know, insightful and it's satirical. And then in one of the key sequences, it has the best, funniest and most pointedly ironic use of NWA I have ever seen in any film. I thought it was great. I mean, some people like Get Out more. I actually think this is perhaps a better movie. That's in at number five. You know how sometimes things line up? Coincidences? Since we've been up here, they've been happening more and more. It's like there's this black cloud hanging over us. There's a family in our driveway. Who is that? Run. On to number four now, and at number four, a film that was chosen by Barack Obama as one of his favourites of the year that it opened. Um, It was a film that won uh, awards at the National Board of Review in January, directed by Bo Burnham, his debut feature, it's eighth grade. And I've gone on about eighth grade and just said how wonderful it is. Anna Meredith, who did the score for it, came on the MK3D show again. You know, go back and listen to that uh, podcast because she's really great and really, really funny and very, very smart. And her music for the film is such a big part of why it's brilliant. Elsie Fisher is the centre of it. She's this young uh, girl called Kayla, who is this socially anxious 13-year-old. She's approaching the end of middle school. 
and she's crushingly voted most quiet in class and she struggles to connect with her peers in person but she has this whole second life she runs a video blog putting up self-help videos about being yourself and putting yourself out there but this is something that she can do in this artificial world but not in the real world and Bo Burnham said that that his film was made as, quote, an attempt to represent the kids who live their lives online and who have been mischaracterized as self-obsessed, narcissistic and shallow, but who are actually self-conscious. And the reason the film is great is because there are all these cliches about, you know, the self-obsession of youth nowadays. And what he says is, no, that's not the case. Basically, we've created a world into which we now expect, you know, youngsters to enter with complete impunity. There's a world in which everything is online and everything is put up for scrutiny and everything is constantly being examined. And then we're kind of surprised when young people find that really difficult to deal with. And the brilliant thing about the film, firstly, it's made by somebody who actually understands the world they're depicting. And secondly, it's fantastically sympathetic it's a film with a really really big heart it's the kind of film that should be seen yes by teenagers who would understand those circumstances but also i think by adults who need to understand a little bit more just how hard that world is for the young people who are growing up in it also the film has a a brilliantly positive message i think it is a film which uh, absolutely sees the possibility for a better future whilst not shying away from the horrible realities of the present. Are you bored, Kayla? Huh? You look bored. <laughs> I'm not bored. Try to stop. What? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not judging her. It's fine. We're bored of her. She's a different generation than us. She's, She's right not a to different generation. Yeah, she is. She's four years younger than us. I mean. Okay, but people who are like four years older than us felt like fucking. 50 years old. It's like blatantly not Your true. sister? My sister just sucks. Okay, but like, on top of that, she didn't have Twitter in middle school, and we did. That made us different. Kayla, you're not different than us, though. Well, yeah. When did you get Snapchat? What grade? Fifth grade? Fifth grade? Oh. What? Yo, see? Wait, so were kids like sending each other like nudes in like fifth grade? No, like, okay, that is a weird question. No, that's like a weird question. That is a weird question. I don't think she's seeing dicks in fifth grade. She's like wired differently. She's not wired different. I'm not saying it's like a bad thing. I'm just making a like. Let's stop this. Let's stop this now. Jesus Christ, fine. I'm just like making a fun point. Okay, fun point made. Let's go. Okay? Don't bring me into this shit. I actually like the filters on Snapchat and stuff. Those are cool. Yeah, me too into the top three now now at number three a film which i loved which i know didn't find the audience that i think it deserved and i also know a lot of people who don't like it at all they were disappointed by it or baffled by it or sideswiped by it all i can tell you is this i've seen it three times and every time i've seen it it just gets better it's carol morley's out of blue not out of the blue but out of blue the film is adapted very loosely from a novel by martin amos called night train And Carol Morley, who's the genius behind things like The Falling and Dreams of a Life and The Alcohol Years, she described the film as an attempt to rescue the characters from the pages of the book. She liked the characters, but she didn't like the book very much or she had problems with the book. And so what she does is she takes a sort of neo-noir murder mystery and turns it into this quasi-metaphysical rumination about life, the universe and everything. And... The thing I'm really impressed by about the film, I say this quite a lot, I would always rather watch somebody aim very high and perhaps falter or fall than watch somebody play it safe. 
And the genius of Out of Blue is it's a film that is absolutely made by somebody who is unafraid to fall, somebody who is not scared of overreaching themselves, somebody who is not frightened of their film falling into possible preposterousness. It has a fantastic score by Clint Mansell, which I have a vinyl copy of, and I've just played it to death. I do a show on Scala Radio. I've played loads of the the music from Out of Blue on my Scala Radio show. I, I love it. The film evokes a world that really, really works for me. Some people have said there's a kind of David Lynch comparison, but I would think the comparisons are actually things like Matter of Life and Death or maybe a bit of Angel Heart. And in fact, there are nods to films like Meshes of the Afternoon. It's a really, really cine-literate film. And it's by somebody who I think is a genuinely unique filmmaker. There's nobody making films like Carol Morley at the moment. I think she is an an absolute original. I think she's got a brilliant voice. I, I, I love her movies and I really, really love Out of Blue. And frankly, I don't care what anybody else thinks. Tony, Tony. Did you know that your nose could come from a different star than your hand? And that we're all here because a star died? Ain't it against God to believe that? It's not a belief. It's fact. I don't buy it. I thought you believed you were a bit of a star. Silvero. 70s star. Hmm. You're one to talk, Joan Jett. Now into the top ten, it was very difficult to choose between these two, but, you know, lists is lists, you have to make a choice. So, at number two, If Beale Street Could Talk. This is Barry Jenkins' brilliant adaptation of uh, James Baldwin's 1970s novel, which he turns into this cinematic, swooning love story, and it's tough and tender and truthful. And what I love about it is that it's, on the one hand, it's a film about real um, social injustice and strife and imprisonment and wrongful imprisonment and somebody being framed. And it's very, very relevant because it's a film about the divisions in American society that I think are even more relevant today. But it is, at its heart, a love story. And one of the ways that love story is told is through music. It's got a fantastic score by Nicholas Brutel, which sort of brushes up against these classic vinyl cuts that, I mean, Barry Jenkins has always understood how to use music brilliantly. And I think he he really does so here. Um, It's also a coming of age story. I mean, I made a piece for the BBC, the Secret of Cinema series we did. One of them was about coming of age movies. And we were talking about films like 400 Blows and Rat Catcher and American Graffiti and, of course, Moonlight. And the genius of Moonlight is that it manages to take a character, a situation that may have nothing in common with the particular viewer, but it makes it seem universal. And I think that if Beale Street could talk, does the same thing. I mean, it's an older coming of age story because it's about you know, a couple who are on the brink of starting their own family. And yet it's, it is about growing up in as much as it's about facing up to the harsh realities of the world. And it's a story in which I think love conquers all. So at number two, if Beale Street could talk. Eliza, we're going to have a baby. I should have said already, we're not married. That means more to him than it does to me, but I understand how he feels. Finally, is 22. I'm 19. I'm glad 
Honey, I'm glad. Don't you worry. You tell my daddy? Not yet. You tell your folks? Not yet, but don't worry about them. I just wanted to tell you first. A baby. Which brings me to the number one spot. And this is a film I enjoy so much. And I did think, you know, is it serious enough? Is it heavyweight enough to be number one? I don't care. It's the film I have just flat out enjoyed in cinemas most this year in the first half of the year between January and June. It is, of course, Dexter Fletcher's Rocket Man. This fantastical account of the highs and lows of Elton John's career, of his rise and fall and re-rise told. And this is the thing about it told as a musical not as a film with songs in it but as a musical so it's not like the queen biopic bohemian rhapsody which you know had them playing the songs in between the story of the band and which the liberties that they took with the timeline was kind of problematic you go well that song's not there that outfit wasn't meant to be there they didn't have that on that album that's not the first top of the pops performance what about the mot the hoople tour in the case of rocket man it's a collage. It doesn't matter what happens when. It doesn't matter who sings what. It doesn't matter in what order any of these things happen because it's the story of Elton John's life told in this collage fashion. This brilliant framing device by Lee Hall, who, of course, uh, wrote Billy Elliot, and basically starts with Elton John dressed in this ridiculous, fiery demon costume, storming, essentially, it looks like off stage and straight into rehab, where he then sits and remembers his life, his life as a young kid growing up in Pinner and first discovering his love of music and then his issue with not being hugged by his father. Actually, the whole film is really about somebody who just wants a hug, somebody who just wants to be loved. But it's done so brilliantly. It's done with such gusto. Dexter Fletcher obviously has a fantastic, uh, you know, heritage. I mean, you look at the people that he's worked with as an actor, and now I think he's a brilliant director. So it's not surprising that you see elements of the surreal excesses of Listomania or the kind of the, I think, the, the, the art house edge of, of Derek Jarman. And there's something there as well of that kind of colourful ambition of, of Absolute Beginners, the Julian Temple film, which, again, I think is kind of underrated. And even that Brit pit grit of something like That'll Be The Day, which back in the 1970s was what the British pop movie looked like. All those things are thrown together into this, this brilliantly non-linear jukebox treat, which just throws them all up in the air and lets them arrive and lets them fall like some kind of weird sparkly bird falling out of the sky. There's a brilliant performance by Taron Edgerton at the centre of it all. And actually a great ensemble cast. But for me, the real star of it is Dexter Fletcher, who I think has done such a brilliant job taking that story and turning it into something profoundly cinematic. Feeling in I could hear the whole tune in my head. It was all there, I could see all the notes, and I just had to get it out. It's a little bit funny This feeling inside What did you say your name was again? My name is... Reggie! Reginald Dwight. Reginald? That's my granddad's name. Start as a fat boy from nowhere. Get to be a soul man. You gotta kill the person you were born to be in order to become the person you want to be. I'm thinking of changing my name to Elton. But that's my name. Yeah, I know. 
Yeah, you can be the best-selling artist in America if you deserve it. I was trying to do something bold. Why are you still something flashy? Can you even play the piano in those? Let them know who you are. And just don't kill yourself with drugs. So just to run down the top 10, at number 10, Capernaum, number 9, Birds of Passage, number 8, Burning, number 7, Dirty God, number 6, Amazing Grace, after all these years, number 5, Us, or US, depending on how you feel, and number 4, 8th Grade, number 3, The Brilliant Out of Blue, please go and see it, more people need to see it, number 2, If Beale Street Could Talk, and at number 1, Rocket Man. Now, obviously, many of those choices won't uh, match yours, and I'm sure you have your own choices, so let me know what they are. You can get in touch at Kermode Movie on Twitter. That's the best way to get in touch with me. And Let me know what I've left out, what you liked, what you didn't like, and uh, maybe we'll read some of your replies out on a future Kermode on Film blog. And if you've enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, tell your friends, and keep watching the skies. Coming up on the next Kermode on Film podcast, my worst films of the year so far. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW.